glad you're here with us this morning. If you're visiting with us for the first time, I would ask you if you would grab one of those little things that are in the seat back in front of you, and if you would fill one of those out for us, let us have a chance to at least connect you to some information. I promise you we won't um, try and inundate you. We just want to connect you to um, information about who we are as a church, what we believe, what we understand church to be, and um, that would be a treat for us to have the chance to do that. We're glad that you're sharing your morning with us, whether you're a visitor or whether you're family, church family. This is a special Sunday. This must be what it feels like to be an empty nester now that we've sent off our church plant. So this is, this is what it's like, right? I know some of you are saying no, because I have my little one in here for the first time ever or from now on ever. And I know some of you, I've had this thousand yard stare by some of the parents coming in going, ah, it's a new stage of life now because this, this new treasure is joining me in corporate worship so i hope to to glean something in the next hour or whatever 20 minutes 20 minute sermon is what it'll probably be not so we'll we're going to pray for you we're going to open in prayer we're going to pray for those who uh who are are going to be um who have their little ones with them this morning i'm gonna pray for the little ones too the little ones get things out of this that that would surprise you and um, that's the work of the Holy Spirit that we can enjoy together and we can ha- ask him to be uh, a participant in. So let's pray. God, we are thankful for um, having the chance to gather this morning. Thankful that we can. Thankful that we uh, have a chance to gather around a word uh, that is from you, that is living and sharp and powerful and eye-opening and life-giving Lord, I'm thankful that we have the chance to just dive into this today. I pray that you would guide us in our time. I pray for parents this morning who are uh, wanting and needing to hear from you and wanting to understand what what your message is for your people today, uh, but who also may be um, shepherding in the the, uh, seat today with the little one. Lord, I just pray for an exhale. I pray for... um, just a peace that passes understanding. I pray for a trust, knowing that uh, the Holy Spirit can even speak to um, a distracted mom or dad or a distracted um, boy or girl. I'm thankful that you work that way and that you can penetrate uh, distractions and speak to hearts and minds. And we pray for that for our little ones this morning who may be joining us for the first time or may be joining us forevermore this morning. I pray they'll hear something today I'm excited about the chance of, during this sermon, to have something uh, that I think connects to a little boy uh, especially, but likely a little girl could connect to as well. I pray that we as grown-ups as well can, can um, engage you and enjoy you in these next few minutes. Lord, we do want to pray for another church in our community this, this morning. We want to pray for Cornerstone Fellowship and Trent and Natalie Brown. I want to thank you for the ministry that Trent has uh, to GCS, to uh, his family, not in, not in this order, but his family, to his church, and to GCS. Thankful that, that you are using him uh, in so many ways. I pray that he is fueled by worship. Just imagining the demands on his life um, and his family and his marriage that, that you would um, give them an extra measure of grace and joy um, as they labor in your work. Um, I'm thankful for the opportunity to lift them up this morning and to lift up Cornerstone Fellowship Uh, We just pray that you would be great, uh, enjoyed, that your kingdom would be advanced through the work of Cornerstone Fellowship, and um, 
We entrust them to you this morning as we entrust this time to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 15 through the end of the chapter. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I don't know anyone who doesn't at times experience powerlessness. I don't know anybody that doesn't at at times experience what I would call even sounds worse, just impotence. It seems like it finds its way into marriages. It finds its way into work settings, into relationships, into school settings. It can even, unfortunately, find its way into church settings. I bet you know the feeling. I bet you can relate to this feeling that at times it may seem as if no matter what you do, it just won't make a difference. I think that's part of life in 2015, where we are in our age and our place. I can't imagine, though, what life must have been like in the Roman Empire in Ephesus in the first century A.D. The temple of Artemis stood at the city center, and the shadow must have covered a good portion of the city. Trade and commerce were so connected to this worship of Artemis and worship of just paganism. Whatever feelings of powerlessness that we might feel must pale in comparison to the feelings of powerlessness and impotence that they must have felt at times under the heavy hand of the Roman Empire. Being a Christian in Ephesus must have been torturous. Maybe that's why Paul is praying for them nearly from the beginning of the letter in the, the book of or the epistle of the, the, the letter to the church in, in Ephesus, the book, book called Ephesians. I'm stuck. Just somebody help me. <laughs> the thing I enjoy, too, it's not a general prayer that things will just go well for them or that things will be easier. It's a specific prayer for knowledge. And not just knowledge about general facts, but knowledge specifically of God. And that word is what we would even use experience of God. He's praying that they would experience God in this tough context. 
And more specifically, he prays for three things. Surgically, he prays first that they will know the hope to which they have been called. Secondly, that they would know that they are an inheritance and that they are due an inheritance. And third, where we're going today, what I can't help but imagine would have been a tremendous blessing to them. Experiencing impotence or powerlessness under the heavy hand of the Roman Empire, that they would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. I've asked myself the question in our context in 2015, is this even worth praying for us now? We don't live under the Roman Empire. Things aren't as terrible for us as they must have been for them and trusting Christ in that context. Would it be necessary to pray this prayer for us now? Why would it be necessary for us to know the power that is toward us now? And I've thought about my own life, and I've thought about the lives that I've come in contact with in this church. And I thought, man, we can and do live powerlessly. We can and do so easily find ourselves living and walking helplessly in our marriages, living and walking helplessly in our relationships, in our workplaces, just like a bunch of lemmings just trying to get to the finish line just trying to finish well somehow and hang on till we die. And yet at the same time, we are supposed to be salty, bright, and aromatic, a preservative to our context, an attractant in our context, a bright light. And I'm sitting here at times, how can we live, thinking how can we live lives so defeated, powerless, and impotent? There are times where I'm thinking, somebody, if they got, really got to know me or some of they, if they got to know you or got to know us at times, they might think to themselves, who in their right mind would want what they have? Man, let's just be really honest. We can live powerless with the best of them. It might sound something like this. My wife and I are struggling so much and we just can't seem to break out of it. My life seems so empty and I feel like I have no purpose and meaning. I'm driven by fear and anxiety and can't seem to break free. I'm stuck in a besetting sin that's killing me and those around me, and I just really feel helpless. I'm close to giving up. I've got some good news for any of us who may have had those feelings or may have those feelings from time to time today, that there is hope for the powerless and hope for the helpless hope for the defeated and the beat down. Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church is that they would know God's power toward those who believe. And that's my hope and prayer today in this sermon because I know how we can live. And I know how we need this. One of the things I enjoy about these three things that he prayed for he prayed for really the beginning of the journey, the middle of the journey, and the end of the journey. The beginning of the journey, knowing the hope to which you've been called. And the end of the journey, that they would know their inheritance. They would have their finish line in view. And the power that he's praying for is all about the middle bits. He's covered the whole story for the people he's praying for. Their call, their ending, and the middle bits. He's praying for and hoping for power 
What we're going to do this morning is we're really just going to explore this passage beginning in verse 19, and we're going to unpack it. I'm going to spend some time today introducing you to some Greek words. I don't do this often, so when I do it, I do it for a very specific purpose. We're going to look at verse 19. What he's praying for here in this third thing that he's lifted up so surgically and specifically for the church in Ephesus is that they would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. There are four Greek words that are used in this passage that are the only place in Scripture where all four of these Greek words are used together. They are used in pairs in other places, but here there are four of them condensed into this one single verse. This verse could be translated with these words that I'm about to introduce to you. There are words that are translated as something other than power. There's one that's translated as power and then others that are using different words. This passage could be translated that he's praying that they may know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working power of his powerful power. It'd be nonsensical. We'd have a tough time making sense of that. I just put love in there. I'm trying to just baptize myself in what he's saying here and thinking this, it could be translated, if he was talking about love, that you may know the immeasurable greatness of his love toward us who believe according to the loving love of his lovely love. Thank goodness our translators didn't do that, but it would be difficult for them to distinguish between these words that can very easily be translated power because they mean slightly different things. And if we take a moment to consider what they are, We'll have a very robust understanding of the power that he's hoping that the Ephesians would know that I'm hoping that we will know. Here's the first of those four words. It's the word dunamai. This word means potential power and energy. It's where we get the word dynamite. You can even visualize it that way. If somebody handed you a stick of dynamite, that thing is not going off, but you know the potential is there. You know the potential is there for some tremendous power. And that word is the word that actually in this passage is translated power, the immeasurable greatness of his dunamai toward us who believe. That is potential power. The next word that's used in order in this passage, his power toward us who believe according to the working, is the word working. This word is the word energia which means power in action. If dunamai is potential power, energy is working power. Power in motion. The next word is the word great that's translated here is actually the Greek word kratos, which means significant strength and ability to overcome resistance. And the fourth word is translated here in this passage, might, is the word iskos, which means inherent strength and power possessed. Okay? It's four words. Dunamis or dunamai. Energia. Kratos and iskus. Dunamis, potential power. Energia is moving actual power in action. Kratos is significant strength and ability to overcome resistance. And iskus is inherent strength and power possessed. I want to show you how these work together with an illustration that even our little boys especially will get here in these next few minutes. Little girls might get it too. When my boys, when our boys were young, we read a book to them that was just a book. It was not many words. It was just pictures of mighty machines was the name of the book. Anybody else have this book that you've read to your boy and you know that boy is just captivated with these massive 
earth-moving machines. Page after page of all these cranes and dozers and these work multipliers. I want you to imagine for a moment a mighty machine dozer. A big, big bulldozer. It's made by Caterpillar. Imagine one of these massive dozers. This thing that's so big that you see it going down the highway on a trailer and it's got an escort behind them and in front of them and on the side of them with flags sticking out everywhere because this is a big rascal. His tires are hanging over the side of this trailer. Imagine that Caterpillar dozer for the next few minutes. Massive, earth-moving machine. Just the description, just the imagining here as we're thinking about, yes, I've seen one of those going down the highway before on the back of a big trailer with escorts all around it. Just the description there could be considered potential energy, what you're experiencing right now. You know that joker can get something done. Just the, just the thought of it is the potential energy of just the thought of this caterpillar dozer. Now, having thought about it, I want to take it to the next level. Imagine that We've talked about something that you've seen before. Imagine that you're standing right in front of that dozer. Now it's on the ground. It's off the trailer. It's about to get some work done, but it's just sitting there for the moment. You walk up to it, and this thing towers above you. You're looking at metal, this yellow caterpillar metal all around. You're looking at these huge tires that are twice as tall as you are with these big lugs sticking out everywhere, and you're like, man, that joker right there can get something done. It looks strong and capable. That's Iscus. Now, Bob the Builder climbs in that joker. I don't know if they have keys or not. I've never been in one, but let's say he takes the keys, he puts it in the ignition, he turns the glow plug. You guys that have diesel, you know what I'm talking about. Turns the glow plug, and everybody's anticipating this thing. You know that thing's warming up in that glow plug, and then he cranks that big old massive diesel engine, and you can feel your guts vibrating as you stand next to it. Now, before you've experienced dunamai, potential power, just the thought and the notion of it, just seeing it maybe from afar, but now that you're standing next to it, you've experienced iscus, this potential power, this, 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 uh, this overcoming power that you know this thing can get something done, and then as you stand there and you hear that thing cranked and you hear that big diesel engine, you feel the torque and the power of this mighty machine underneath your feet, that's Kratos. Then, though, then he's going to put that joker in gear. And then he begins moving some earth, mountains of earth, moving boulders with that big old blade. He's running over trees, scooping up earth. He is getting something done. That is energia. All four of those things you can sort of visualize with this big old mighty machine. Knowing the power of God means that you are a student of God's power, his potential power, the dunamai, his inherent strength, the iskus, the ability to overcome resistance, the kratos, and then his pattern of actual power in action, energia. Knowing God and knowing the power that's toward us means engaging those four things. Turn to the book of Exodus. I wonder how many of you, your minds, were thinking back to a story in our Old Testaments. I hope that most of us in here, as we're talking about God's demonstration of power, if you had a moment, you would think back to the Exodus. It'd be 3,500 years ago for us, as we stand here today. You turn to Exodus chapter 3. Things were going pretty well in Egypt at the time. They were likely... One of, if not the strongest, richest countries in the world. 
Likely Joseph had something to do with that. As he had them 400 years earlier build storehouses and store up grain to sustain them to sell during times of famine would have likely made them one of the richest countries around. They had hundreds of thousands, if not millions, potentially, of slaves called Israelites. And these slaves did their hard work for them. They made the bricks, and the Egyptians didn't even have to get their hands dirty. But then God showed potential power when he called Moses and sent him to Pharaoh. Listen to chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I, God, knows their sufferings. I have come down and condescended to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. This potential power, you can sort of hear and imagine this thing. You're thinking about this big caterpillar dozer as God says, here's what I'm going to do. There's, going, there's potential power at play here and a couple verses later in verse 10 he says come here Moses I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people the children of Israel out of Egypt God showed potential power when he called Moses and sent him to Pharaoh He, through Moses, then communicated his inherent strength, the iskus, and his ability to overcome resistance and kratos through Moses' message to Pharaoh to let his people go, complete with a little miniature miracle, taking his staff, throwing his staff on the ground, and it becoming a snake, and then eating all the wizard snakes, and then coming a staff again. A little display of power, a little miniature display of power, but then... The rumbling caterpillar diesel cranked up and started moving some earth. Look at chapter 7, verse 20. Just a few pages over. In the sight of Pharaoh and the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not even drink the water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. This caterpillar is moving some earth now. There is energia going on here as the Nile is turned to blood, as the frogs then invade ovens and bowls and beds. There are gnats that are becoming as thick as dust. Let me share something with you, a little side note. Personally, I struggle with different things from week to week in preaching, and this is one of the things I struggled with. I fear a bunch of New Testament Christians, and I mean New Testament Christians that live in their New Testaments more than they ever spend any time in their Old Testaments, that you may hear these old stories and recollect the days when you were in Sunday school and you used to hear about the Exodus, and it, we should be more inundated with this story than that. These mighty acts of judgments called the plagues should be so real to us. The Exodus was the centerpiece of the Old Testament. I was talking with somebody this week and said, yeah, when I was a kid, I had a little New Testament with Psalms and Proverbs there. I did too. I thought I could identify with that. And he was was talking about tragically that his church never engaged any of these 
the rest of the story. That's all he needed was his New Testament with his Psalms and Proverbs. That would be like somebody passing out a bunch of punchlines and expecting you to somehow extrapolate the joke. Man, a bunch of people this side of the cross that could so easily just live over here in the New Testament should be so saturated in this story of the plagues and the exodus that we can just almost start quaking right now as we think about, not, about the Nile turning to blood, as we think about frogs and gnats and flies and dead livestock and boils and Volkswagen-sized hail falling and crushing livestock. We're thinking about locusts and a darkness that could be felt. We ought not be thinking about our little Sunday school stories. We should be climbing into this story and realizing this was the story of God's people. This happened to God's people. And imagine they're quaking. And somehow reliving that quaking would do something to us. We could experience together His power. These workings of his power, one right after another, then culminated with the ultimate demonstration of his energia, judgment, power, where the firstborn in Egyptian homes, every last one of them, the firstborn grown brother, let this hit you for a minute, the firstborn grown brother to the firstborn son to the firstborn kitty cat in a litter to the firstborn puppy dog in a litter to the firstborn of every cow that somehow had survived at that point, the livestock plague or the Volkswagen-sized hail, all died in one night. That's a mighty act of power and a mighty act of judgment. And meanwhile, that same energy, that same power in motion, that judgment power that took all these firstborns, delivered this people from 400 years of slavery in one night. This is work, working power right here. This is earth-moving power right here. This is energy. Paul in Romans 9 said this, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. This story is not just some old tired story. It is the picture of something that we should be so inundated with that Paul here in Romans to the Roman church is using it as a reference point. The Exodus was one of the, if not the biggest display of power in our Old Testaments. And it was meant to be a relentless, one right after another, display of power. There's potential power in the sending. There's kratos and iskus in the early demonstrations. But then there's relentless energy, one right after another. Piles and mountains and boulders of earth moved. Now here's the cool thing. Go back to Ephesians chapter 1. Here's the reason we need to be saturated with this story. Here's the reason it should be a touch point for us, where we ought to have this thing almost always in view, maybe even always in view as we read our New Testaments. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19, look at what's said there. He's praying that they may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us, who believe according to the working of his great might. This power that he's referring to here with these four Greek words that we've illustrated with this beautiful story in our Old Testaments is toward us. 
His prayer for the Ephesian church is that they would realize and know his power is toward us. Do you realize that? Just stop down for a minute. Just say, all right, do I realize that? Do I, does my life reflect that that sort of mighty act of judgment power is the power that's directed toward me? This exodus power is the power that's directed toward the church being more specific. Not just you, but the church. Do you know that? I don't always know that. Because <laughs> I can live impotent with the best of them. Do you know that? Do you know that this mighty exodus power, here's the beauty of where we're going. Do you know that this mighty exodus Earth-moving, cattle-crushing, boil-sending, Nile-turning-the-blood power is but a thin sliver of the power that's been directed toward his church. It's not only directed toward us, but it's been directed toward us manifold more than even this Exodus story. See, the blood of these little bitty innocent Passover lambs, if you read the Exodus story, which you need to. The blood of these little innocent Passover lambs that marked the lentils and doors of the delivered was but a shadow of the blood shed by our Passover lamb that marks the lentils of the church. The death of the firstborn in every home as a powerful judgment work was but a shadow of the only begotten Son of God who died in our place. The defeat of Pharaoh and his army and the working power of a parted sea is but a shadow of the defeat of Satan at the cross. Colossians 2 says, He disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame like a bunch of chumps by the triumphing over them in Him. And that's through the cross. The power that liberated the nation of Israel from 400 years of slavery is but a thin sliver of a whisper of a shadow of the power that's liberated God's people from slavery to sin and Satan and death. Man, that's why we ought to saturate ourselves with that story because it's a shadow of what we're really walking in in our day and age. This is the immeasurably great power that's toward us who believe. Do you know that? Maybe you need some proof. Thankfully, Paul gives some proof here. You almost get the sense that it may have been hard to believe under the Roman Empire in Ephesus. Like, yeah, immeasurably great power that's working toward us. That all sounds pretty good, Paul, but... Have you seen Rome? Have you seen Nero? Have you seen Claudius, whoever the emperor was at that time? Have you seen the heavy hand that we live under? Have you seen the paganism of Artemis? Well, beautifully, he gives some evidence, some proofs. And they start in verse 20 of Ephesians chapter 1. Let's look at them briefly. He's praying that they may know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. That's two of them right there. Raising Jesus and seating him. 
far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And here's the third thing. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. If you need some proof that this power has been directed toward you, this power that this in, the, in the, the, the plagues is just a thin whisper of what we're actually walking in, here's where you go right here. Some beautiful proofs. The first of all, that he raised him from the dead. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. It's the last place I'm having you go today. So keep your finger in Ephesians because we'll need to come back to it. As you're turning there, I want to share a few thoughts with you. God demonstrated his working power toward us in the resurrection of Jesus. That's why Easter's are so sweet for us. That's why we celebrate Easter and really enjoy. Philippians 3.10, Paul has gone through this list of accomplishments that he's this, this resume, this long list of things that he's accomplished, and he counts them all rubbish. And this is what he hopes for. This is what he's pining for, really. In chapter 3, verse 10, he says, "...that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death." That's what Paul counted the real cream, is knowing the power of his resurrection. Because the resurrection was the ultimate demonstration of his power. Romans chapter 6 verse 9 says, We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again, and death no longer has dominion over him. See, Christ defeated something that no one else on earth will have or can ever defeat. No matter how powerful a person may be, no matter how powerful an empire may be, they're going to die, that's guaranteed. From dust they came and, from, and to dust they will return. That is a guarantee. Yet Christ defeated death. And here's this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let me preface this passage with a story, brief one. A pastor of a church that Christy and I were part of years ago, that I, a pastor that I'm really fond of still, I have a lot of love for. He said this one time, and this is not praiseworthy. I'm not... That's why I'm not mentioning his name. It's not even something that he would probably count as critical. He said, you know, if I died and I got, you know, after I died, he didn't say because there, there was no heaven. That was kind of the point. If I died and found out that we were just bugs, like crushed underfoot and it's just all over and there's nothing after life. He said, I wouldn't do anything different because the Christian life has been so sweet. And I remember how much that resonated with me at the time. I thought, man, I really like the sound of that. And I agreed with him for years. And I may have said as much here at Crosspoint over the years. I hope I haven't said it much because I'm about to undo it big time. Because that approach to the Christian life is that Christian, lives are just, Christian lives are just sort of nicer and cleaner and tidier. And God's a pretty good life coach. If he's imaginary after all, things have gone pretty well for me following his principles and designs. Yet this passage here tells us what we really are if this resurrection didn't actually happen. Look at verse 17. 
If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. However tidy your life may be, however nice your marriage may be, if you've been playing Christian and Jesus is actually still in the tomb or his body was destroyed and he didn't actually raise, wasn't actually raised from the dead, you're still in your sins. That's the tragedy. Then those also who've fallen asleep in Christ have just perished. They're just bugs. Squish. And then he says next, in, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we, of all, uh, we are of all people most to be pitied. I totally understand what my pastor friend was saying years ago. And I understand why I kind of connected to it. But now in retrospect, I look at it and go, man, if Christ was not risen from the dead, if he was not raised from the dead, if this power was not demonstrated in the resurrection and, we, then, and, and we're living life following it as if he had, then we are most to be pitied. But here's what Paul says next. But if in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep are... But in fact, not if, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That's the good news of the gospel. It's not that your life is going to be tidier and that your marriages are going to be cleaner and things are going to be easy for you and your, your life coach is going to make life sweeter for you. Here's the good news for us, that your sins have been paid for through the power of the resurrection. We're not living futile lives. We're not most to be pitied because we're walking with a risen, seated, reigning, and ruling Lord who demonstrated his power in the resurrection. That's what makes us Christian. That's what our good news is. That's what we walk in. That's what we hold on to. And the proof of the resurrection is plentiful. Man, even today, people will doubt that. But man, I'm telling you, I just met, like, like, I can't remember, was it Jerry Maguire? So show me the money. Show me the body. Show me the body. There's nobody in the world that would have been more eager to produce the body than the Pharisees and the Sadducees and Rome. Show me the body. And then explain to me why, we'll say 12. We don't know how John died. He might have died of old age on the Isle of Patmos. But we'll just say 12 dudes martyred having seen the risen Lord. Disemboweled. Okay, I'm just going to say that if Jesus was not risen, and in fact he was in fact dead, and I hadn't seen the risen Lord, just about the time they take the knife and they're going to disembowel me, I say, okay, I'm just kidding. It was just a joke. I didn't really mean it. Please don't disembowel me or crucify me upside down or martyr me. But these guys who had been the chickens of Passover, Jesus who? I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. Are now the bold preachers of Pentecost and the bold preachers of the early church it's because they saw the power of the resurrection. They saw the risen Lord. That's what we walk in. That power. Paul says, you need some proof? Here's some proof. He is risen. You need some proof that there's some power that's directed toward you and it's pretty awesome? Okay, here's proof. He is risen. The second proof that's really a nice one is that he is seated. 
Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. A few verses later, the Father speaks to him and says, Sit at my right hand, son, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Prop your pierced feet up right here on your enemies as a demonstration of power. And he seated him far above Pharaoh. Pharaoh who? He seated him far above Claudius or Nero, Ephesian church. Nero who? He seated him far above Democrat, Republican, Tea Party, Independent, Comb Over, Email Eraser. He seated him far above anything that might have any semblance of power today. His power is proven over and over and over through a big story, but ultimately in what was accomplished through the work of the cross and the resurrection and the seating as reigning, ruling ruler with all things under his feet. You need proof? There's plenty right there. I hope you appreciate how awesome his power is and how it was shadowed and how it's ultimately displayed in the earth-moving slavery-liberating work of the cross. I was talking with Christy about this earlier in the week and getting pretty excited about it. And Christy, just the voice of reason, says, okay, well, how does that, how does that play out? That's pretty cool and all, pretty awesome and all, but how do we, how do we walk in that? It's a good question. And I think the answer to that is in this passage as well. It may not be what you th- would, would expect, But it's right here in this passage. Look at verses 22 and 23. He put all things under his feet. He gave him his head over all things to the church. Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This power that we've considered today, these big four Greek nouns that we considered and explored a little bit and even visualized in this big caterpillar, that mover, earth mover, that we also visualized in the plagues, the mighty acts of judgment and the deliverance in the exodus. This power was given in the person of Jesus to the church. He gave him as head over all things, this power worker, this power broker, this ruler, this living, reigning ruler he gave to the church. It's just crazy. And, you know, we're not talking about the church in a figurative sense. That's where we tend to go. So it, it becomes far less personal. We don't, that's when it becomes sort of ethereal, where it's just sort of philosophical. Realize this letter was written to real Ephesian people. Real Ephesian believers in Ephesus, real Christians, real Jews and Gentiles that apparently, from the way the rest of the letter unfolds, were having maybe potentially a little struggle with one another. Hey, you're a Jew believer, Jewish Christian. I'm a Gentile Christian, and we're very different. You're from Mars, I'm from Venus. I mean, you can't imagine any two more different people. Real people in that church are receiving this letter. It's connecting with real people. Apparently, later in the book, he's talking to about husbands and wives. 
We're talking about real husbands and wives in a real church. We're not talking about figurative church. We're talking about real church because later even he talks about parents and children. Children obey your parents in the Lord. He's talking about real people. He's not talking about figurative church. He's not talking imaginary church. He's talking about real people. Even then he starts talking about bond servants and masters that we often connect to being a good employee with a boss. He's talking about real people. He's not talking figurative church. He's talking about real people. This letter was given to real church. So the notion here, here's where it's connecting home for us, in a context that is wildly, terribly, tragically churchless Christian. Most people in our community say that they know the Lord, say that they love the Lord, but they have no use for church. The one, the, the, the body that he gave Christ as head over. Think about this for a minute. The notion of experiencing and walking in the power that he has given to us, toward us, without being a meaningful part of his church. That word church also means congregation. It means assembly. You could say it means brothers and sisters and husbands and wives and and fathers and children and mothers and children and real people right here, bond servants and slaves and masters and employees and bosses. This is given, this power is given to the congregation. And the notion of enjoying and walking in that power apart from these real people the, the only word that I could say that I won't get in trouble with, because we have little kids in here, is baloney. And lots of other words come to my mind that aren't that tidy and permissible. The notion that you can walk in his power apart from walking with his people is nonsensical. It's ludicrous. It's preposterous. It would be like expecting to enjoy the sun without ever going outside. You want a tan? You've got to get outside. It'd be like wanting good home-cooked meals, delicious home-cooked stuff, but never even stepping into the kitchen. The notion of experiencing and walking in the power of Jesus and not walking, I mean, with real people in real church is ridiculous. You can't expect to enjoy the powerful sunbeams of Christ without being a meaningful part of the assembly Knowing his power and knowing his people are not the same, but they're Siamese twins. They're connected. You can't have one without the other. They don't survive if you try and separate them. Now, here's the crazy thing. This makes me laugh. I bet I said this week, I have a phrase that I say over and over again when people are difficult. And it's not people are difficult. It's people are funny. You've heard me say it up here before. I know Brad's version is bless their hearts. Okay, so we all have our little code. We have our little code. And I've said, I've said people are funny about 100 times this week. I said about 20 times last night over dinner, just laughing, because people are funny, I'm telling you. But here's the crazy, the crazy reality. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That he's given this to the church, this regular old church, this Jew and Gentile, a real Jew sitting next to a real Gentile, that this power broker, this power ruler, this, this uh, Savior and Lord, this ultimate earth mover has been given to husbands and wives in the church, has been given to parents and children in the church, 
has been given to bond servants and masters in real church with real people that are made of clay. Man, so often, so many people are like, I wish I could find another church where people aren't so clay. <laughs> Good luck. You might think they're not made of clay for a little while, but then you get to know them some more and you find out, oh, they're made of clay. But that's his design. That's the way he's made it. His power is displayed in clay. I think about Gideon breaking clay bowls and then whipping some people's hineys. Real people who are disappointing, difficult, inconsistent, bless their hearts, unpredictable, flighty, fickle, easily distracted, squirrel. <laughs> right? I mean, we're being real honest. But if you endure with clay church people, you'll see the power of God displayed. You'll see the power of God displayed if you just endure with that bunch of clay. Because when something wonderful happens or something wonderful develops, guess who gets every bit of the glory? God does. He's designed it that way. We're going to take our supper now. And I want you to see a passage. Just not especially um, necessary, but since we're nearby, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. This power ruler, power broker, this one that person that is the ultimate demonstration through his work and his resurrection of power... Um, is one that we enjoy every single week when we have the supper. And he's been given to the church. I was thinking about another way that this walking in this power is applied. It's applied in every week as we take the supper. In some ways, what we're doing in the supper is what we should do in conversation, that we do in life groups, that we do as families, that we do as friends. Walking in this power means that we're reminding one another as we are inclined to grumble and complain, bless our hearts. Notice I said our. As we're inclined to grumble and complain, we're surrounded by a bunch of people that can come alongside us and remind us. Don't you remember the earth that was moved for you? Don't you remember that he parted the waters for you and that you survived the watery ordeal? I need people in my life to remind me of those things when I'm living all impotent. Don't you remember Pharaoh and his army going for a long swim in the Red Sea? And don't you remember that that's just a really thin sliver of what's actually been accomplished for you? I know you're hungry right now. I know you're thirsty right now. I get there too. But our God is good and powerful and he's not going to lose any of his sheep. He dropped Volkswagen-sized hail from the sky. And he dropped manna from the sky. He cares for the sparrow and he clothes the lily. You're going to be fine. That's what the church is reminding one another of. When we gather when we have coffee, when we're by the pool, when we're having dinner, 
This is the ultimate refrain that we remind one another of. is the earth-moving work of the cross. That's what church does. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. No matter where power may be missing in your life or seem to be missing in our lives, we can know that ultimately we're walking as beneficiaries of the most powerful, earth-moving, slavery-liberating event that has ever happened. Our weekly meal is that reminder, and it should leave us encouraged, enabled, and ultimately empowered to go walk in the next week. I'll say lastly, before we distribute these elements and take this meal, that this meal is for those who are trusting Christ. If you're not trusting in Christ, if He's not who you're looking for as your earth mover, then don't take this meal. This meal is for those who are trusting Christ. We need it, we want it, and it's here for us. Let me pray and we'll distribute the elements. God, I want to know the power that's toward us who believe. I want to know it, I want to live it, I want to walk in it as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, as a preacher, as a friend. And Lord, I want that for everybody that I know. I want that too for people I don't know in our community, that they can see what it looks like to trust in something that is ultimately so powerful that it raised Christ from the dead, that it seated Him as reigning, ruling, most powerful being given as head to the church. God, I pray, too, that we together can have almost a sense of humor as we see that he put this treasure in jars of clay and that we can actually enjoy each other's clayness. We can actually enjoy your power on display as you change lives, as we go the distance with each other, as we endure with one another, as you transform the people that you think would never be different. I'm thankful that we have a front row seat to this power at work in the church. And I'm thankful too, Lord, that we can take this supper that's a weekly reminder of the power that we walk in as beneficiaries. We love you, Lord, and we trust you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's distribute the elements.